to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22 on Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And just flag them and they'll put a Bible into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning for your ease. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you uh, today. Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. And they listened, that crowd in Jerusalem, to him, that is Paul, until this word, the word Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not even fit to live. And then they cried out and tore their clothes and threw dust into the air. And the commander ordered him, that is Paul, to be brought into the Roman barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that uh, he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that that he went and he told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And then the commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. And then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander also, was also afraid after he found out that Paul was a Roman and because he had even bound him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word again this morning. And we say it with uh, equal awe. Uh, as we uh, do each morning, opening up your book, that it exists in human history, that it is in our hands, that it is alive, it is living, it fashions us, it equips us, it strengthens us, it nourishes us, Lord. It really is a living book. And we thank you, Lord, for every lesson, every uh, principle that is found in your word, every way that it fashions us into the image of Christ, in large ways and in small ways, because we want every part of our life, large and small, to reflect him and then to experience the joy and the freedom that is found in that area of our life as a result. We pray that you would speak to us specifically for uh, con concerning the area of our Christian lives that this verse speaks to us about this morning, and we ask that you would do it by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul has just finished sharing his testimony with a very, very large crowd, as we've seen in uh, recent, recent weeks of religious Jews that were in the area of the Jewish temple there in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he had been given permission to share with that large crowd by a Roman military commander who had uh, only moments before rescued him from being beaten to death by that same uh, crowd in the name of that 
Roman commander was, uh, his name is Claudius Lysias. We find his name a little bit later uh, in the account. It appears that Lysias gave Paul permission to address that crowd because he was trying to solve a problem of his own. He was hoping that as Paul spoke to the crowd, he would be able to determine what it was that created the riot uh, to begin with. And because the Roman military in those days, it also functioned not only as an army in the Roman Empire, but it also functioned as a police force. And so it had to file reports concerning riots and arrests. And if it was going to hold a person in custody, it needed to either have charges in order to do so and bring the person to trial or to release the person uh, altogether. And Paul's testimony, of course, as we saw uh, last week, was cut short uh, by the uproar of the crowd by his uh, simple use of a single word, and that was the word uh, Gentile. And when he mentions Gentile and God's love for the Gentiles, they resort once again to the riot and the uproar that they had been pre previously engaged in. Paul was then hustled away uh, by Lysias and by the Roman force and uh, from the danger of the scene, and and it took a significant military force in order to accomplish that. But Lysias, he still has a problem. He has a man in custody by the name of Paul without understanding the cause of the initial uproar. That is, he doesn't have any sense of what crime to charge uh, Paul with and whether he should be held for trial or whether he should be simply released from uh, custody. So he decided uh, to resort to the old tried-and-true Roman way Uh, for finding out uh, what in the world is going on here, and that was the method of scourging. Uh, The Roman Empire didn't uh, play the good cop, bad cop routine with people when they took them in custody, where if you've seen any movies like that where the, you know, the bad cop comes in and tries to intimidate the prisoner, and I'm going to get you, and you're never going to see the light of day, and we're going to, you know, capital crime and whatever kind of a deal it might be, and then he leaves the room in a rage, and then the other cop comes out and offers the guy a cigarette and a cup of coffee, and he's kind of the comforting guy to see if he'll kind of spill under the influence of of all of that. Rome didn't bother with any of that stuff. They examined you by scourging. And the word is important to notice in verse 24, the word examination. The scourging that they're about to inflict upon Paul here is not punishment. That's not the intention of it at all. The intention behind all, uh, this scourging was in order to examine him. To, it was the means by which Lysias was going to uh, solicit the, a, a a confession from Paul over what in the world had caused uh, this riot. Uh, They might have just simply asked Paul. I think Paul would have told him that, but I think in the emotion of the moment, uh, they just assumed that Paul would be uh, uncooperative. Now, the scourging that they were preparing to inflict uh, upon Paul at this uh, point in time, it wasn't the beating with rods 
that the Apostle Paul received five times at the hands of the Jews and three times while in Roman custody that he speaks about in one of his letters to the church at Corinth. You might look at that and say, well, is this something in the same vein? And nobody wants to be beaten at all at the hands of your enemies or the hands of a a, a government like that to be beaten with rods, wooden sticks was hard enough. But this is something far worse than that, something entirely different. The scourging that they intended to meet out upon Paul was exactly the same scourging uh, that Jesus received on the morning of his crucifixion. A scourging that was so severe, you might remember, that by the time they got done with the scourging, he was unable to then carry uh, the cross beam to the cross to the place of his crucifixion. A scourging in a capital crime, what they would do is they would scourge you, and then you would carry that cross beam to the place of your crucifixion. When they scourged Jesus, they stopped only short of killing him. By the time they were done with him, he didn't even have the strength to carry the beam uh, to Calvary. And this is what they intended to do with the Apostle Paul here. It was a torture that was known in Latin as uh, the flagellum. And so the leather, uh, you would have these long leather strips, uh, uh, several of them up nine or so that would be attached to a very strong wooden handle. And within the leather strips would be a bone and metal and so forth. So this is a last would be laid upon a person's uh, flesh. It was intended to uh, not just inflict pain, but to tear away the skin and to tear away uh, muscle, take things right down into the area of the tendons and in the area uh, of the bone. And of course, this kind of a thing would uh, very often result in a person's death because they would go into shock related to blood loss and the wounds that would be in, uh, inflicted upon them or they would end up crippled for the rest of their life. And this is what they intended to do with the Apostle Paul uh, here. As Paul is being stretched out to be flogged, uh, he then posed a very simple question to the centurion who was overseeing the entire process. And uh, he asked the question, verse 25, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is both Roman and then notice and uncondemned. And in what Paul is doing here essentially in posing this question to the centurion is he's letting them know that he is a Roman citizen. And by implication, he didn't need to spell all of it out to this centurion. The centurion was fully aware of the fact that it was against Roman law to uh, scourge a Roman citizen under these circumstances. In fact, it was against Roman law to even tie up a Roman citizen without proper charges and without a conviction of wrongdoing. And so here facing this scourging, uh, Paul did something very, very significant for us to notice, and that is he is exercising his rights as a Roman citizen. 
Now, the reaction of the centurion that was overseeing the scourging, he got the point immediately that Paul was communicating, and uh, he made a beeline to Lysias. He informed Lysias of Paul's Roman citizenship, and then he warned Lysias against, uh, you know, continuing with a scourging uh, of this man. Lysias, verse 27, immediately comes on the scene, and he begins to interrogate Paul on this very issue, and he asked the question directly whether Paul was a Roman citizen, and Paul answered yes. Lysias, doubtless, I think, uh, proud of his own Roman citizenship, then informed Paul of it. And by the, the means by which he had obtained his citizenship, he told him that he had received it by uh, virtue of paying a very large sum of money, verse 28. In the Roman Empire, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. We take citizenship very, very casually in the world today and very, very casually as citizens of the United States of America. Uh, but not everybody in the Roman Empire had Roman citizenship. It was a big deal uh, to be a part of the Roman Empire and to also be a citizen. It meant something to be a citizen uh, of that uh, empire. And essentially, you became a citizen in the, in the Roman Empire one of three ways. First of all, by virtue of have, doing something heroic on the part of Rome and the Roman Empire, the expansion of that empire. And that's why very often Roman generals or people who had been extraordinarily heroic on the battlefield in the expansion or defense of the Roman Empire were then granted citizenship as a result. And it was something that was very, very valuable to receive. Another way to receive Roman citizenship was to be able to purchase it for money. It uh, wasn't always true in the Roman Empire, but it was true at the time of these events. And when Lysias declares that he had become a Roman citizen by virtue of paying the sum of money that was required to become a Roman citizen, it probably took all of the money that he had ever earned as a member of the Roman military, all of that saved in order to then purchase Roman citizenship. And in doing so, as he speaks to Paul here about this, he doesn't consider it any great sacrifice. He considers it not to be a waste of money or I wish I could have gotten it for less. It was worth it to him, whatever sum of money, to be a Roman citizen. The third means of becoming a Roman citizen was to be born into it by virtue of the fact that your father was already a Roman uh, citizen. And that was a circumstance that was, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, higher circumstance than paying for it. And that's why Paul in verse 28, he responds to Lysias is kind of boasting concerning his citizenship, and he informs him that he had been born a citizen of the Roman Empire. That was a circumstance that was superior to Lysias. Well, the reaction to all of this was very, very swift. 
because fear gripped Lysias, it gripped the centurion, it gripped the entire military force that was about uh, to pour out a, a terrible scourging and beating upon uh, the apostle Paul. And, and they were filled with fear, not merely because uh, they had almost uh, scourged Paul as a Roman citizen, but they were also fearful because they had against Roman law even bound him as a Roman citizen without charges. And all of this brings all of this to a screeching halt. And then the concern was that a report would be delivered concerning all of these events that Paul had been bound and almost scourged because if they had scourged Paul, then the word of this would have gone to Lysias' superior and then he would have been demoted from his position and even from his position as a commander within the Roman military and then also great repercussions for the soldiers uh, that were involved in it as well. They might have all of them been uh, dismissed. So they realized we came within an inch of doing something that would have had terrible repercussions uh, for all of us. This morning, as we consider Paul's exercise, and, and Paul brings all of it to this screeching halt and the exercising of his uh, rights as a Roman citizen, as we consider Paul's exercise of those rights this morning, I want to take a moment to just enlarge upon the subject this morning of our heavenly and of our earthly citizenship as Christians as it's revealed in the Scriptures. And with the hope that it will help us as Christians uh, to use every means of influence that God has given us as people in this world, his people in this uh, world, to use that influence fully and completely in the world around us. And I think it's very timely for us to, that this passage comes up to us today and to spend a little bit of time on it where in light of the political climate and political environment that exists in the United States of America today, where there is clearly, and this has been going on for many years now, a war that has been going on for the heart, the soul, the direction, the mind, and the future uh, of the nation. But up to this point in time, uh, most of that war has been waged as that kind of a war is intended to be waged, and that is with words and with ideas. But as you and I have seen so graphically this week, but it didn't just happen this week, it's been happening in demonstrations throughout our country now uh, for uh, long months where increasingly this war is moving uh, into a physical realm and being marked by physical violence. Repeatedly, we are reminded in the New Testament that as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven, uh, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul spoke of it himself, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, famously, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And uh, here is Paul speaking of the fact that when we become Christians, we not only become a part of a family, God's family, but we also become a part of a kingdom. We become a part of the kingdom of God, and we're made citizens of that kingdom. And it is the most precious citizenship that a person can ever possess. I've spoken momentarily earlier of what citizenship, Roman citizenship, meant to a Roman in the ancient world and uh, how uh, significant it was to have that, how valuable it was to have that, uh, the influence that it gave to you, kind of the the bragging rights that it gave uh, to you. It was quite a thing to be able to say, I am a citizen of Rome. And yet Paul, born into Roman citizenship, He never boasts of it. He uses it, but he never boasts of it at all in the Scriptures. But the thing that he continually boasted of, the thing that put his Roman citizenship in perspective, that caused it to pale in comparison, was in comparison to this citizenship that he realized that he had in the kingdom of God, a heavenly citizenship. Paul's life was, I think it's safe to say, utterly dominated by his heavenly uh, citizenship. But at the same time, he wasn't hesitant at all to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen when necessary and when he felt it was important or the leading of the Holy Spirit in doing that. And Paul models for us here something that I think is important to recognize as Christians. When he exercised his rights as a Roman citizen, clearly he did not believe that to be something that was purely secular or something that was carnal or something that was unspiritual in doing so. And the idea is that neither should we. I do think that it's helpful to remember as Christians that the institution of government in this fallen world, post-Garden of Eden, that the institution of government in this fallen world is God-ordained. It is God's idea. We look at largely secular forces in the United States of America fighting for power over government, and then our tendency is to look at it as Christians and say, all of that is just carnal. All of that is just unspiritual. All of that is just unholy. And it is to forget that government was God's idea, that government exists as an institution of God. That's where it started, uh, uh, where God decreed in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, following the flood at the time of Noah, he said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And that was the start of it. That decree that gave authority to mankind to judge criminal matters and then, when appropriate, to punish offenders. The Bible teaches concerning human government uh, that it expands into all kinds of things. But in terms of the definition of the Bible related to human government, at its rock bottom, you know, level, it is intended to accomplish basically two things 
as a minimum. Number one, to punish evildoers, and then number two, to encourage or reward people who do good, to reward the righteous. And so it, is, it exists primarily to protect its citizens from attack, from attack from without the nation and from attack from within the nation. And so the attack from without, the uh, protection from uh, attack by other nations, that's what a nation's military is for. But then government has a responsibility to protect its citizens from attack within the nation, from being attacked by other people within the nation and uh, the committing of, of crime one against the other. And of course, that's what our police and our law enforcement uh, is for. And so how do you, in terms of government, if the goal is, the idea is that a nation would not become dominated by sin or wrongdoers or by unrighteousness, but that it exists as a place where laws are to be enacted where the righteous prosper, and they always are to prosper behind every bit of legislation, every bit of government uh, that is in place. It is with the idea that this penalizes or deters wrongdoing, but at the same time, it, re it rewards a good citizen. It rewards someone who wants to live uh, righteously. And so it's intended to provide an environment of law and order, one where the righteous can, are rewarded by being righteous, and not just by God, but by the very nation that they live in. Peter wrote concerning this in his first epistle, chapter 2, and he said, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man, uh, speaking of government, and to do so for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who were sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And Peter, when he writes this, he's not saying that every government official is virtuous or that every law in a country is commendable. They're not. But what he's doing is he is, to us as Christians, he is endorsing the institution of government in general, the necessity of government in this fallen world in general, and for us to just stop and to realize that as messy as human government can be. And remember, Paul wrote, uh, Peter wrote his epistle at a time when the Roman emperor was Nero. There's hardly a worse human being uh, that was, oversaw an empire in the history of the world than Nero. And, and what came out of his, uh, his leadership of the Roman empire. But Paul, Peter writes, even within that context, and is reminding us as Christians that uh, that is as bad as government can sometimes be, as messy as it can sometimes be, it is better than no government at all because then you have anarchy and then you have uh, everybody goes down to an animal level, might makes right, and uh, if we think that government is difficult or sitting at a table and figuring things out with two perspectives or more being represented and thinking that's the worst 
thing that we could ever have to do uh, than just try no government at all uh, in a nation. And uh, that gets very, very scary. There are other verses that speak to uh, our uh, uh, commanding us as Christians to support this God-given institution of government. Uh, famously, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And then he talks about law enforcement, and he talks about the enforcement of, of uh, laws and so forth, police and, and those, those that do that within a government, that they are actually servants of the Lord. Again, they are part of God's institution in establishing this kind of a thing and, and maintaining law and order within a nation. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and therefore I exert first of all that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he goes on to say for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet life and peaceful life, that is us as Christians, that the government would be that kind of a government uh, and that we would be able to live it in all godliness and reverence for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In this very vein, Jesus uh, spoke and commanded us, Matthew chapter 22, and he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He affirmed this institution of God called government. And because government is a God-given institution, it does provide us with law and order. Jesus was saying it is worthy of our support, uh, not only emotional, not only mental, but also material in terms of the payment of taxes. Now, how much taxes and what the tax rate should be, that's a whole other issue. Jesus isn't discussing that. And that's a healthy debate when that occurs within a country. But this is what even Jesus uh, spoke on the issue. The lone exception uh, to our support as Christians of this God-given institution of government is if a government commands us to do something that is contrary to the commandments of God in the Word of God. And at that particular point in time, then we must resist that. And as we've seen multiple times in the book of Acts already, as we studied in chapter 4 and again in chapter 5, we must obey God even over man. But even in doing that, when we would take and say, no, we will not stand and obey that law because it is an open violation of what God declares in his word, it isn't done solely out of a spirit of rebellion, but it's done uh, with the recognition that when I stand for God, and if I'm ever ultimately forced to to stand against a government in order to stand for God, that I am not doing something unhealthy or something damaging to that government. 
I am doing the best thing that you can do for a government like that in that moment, and that is to stand against the unrighteousness of the law that it is trying to uh, in, impose upon its entire uh, population. And so, as long as the government doesn't go beyond the clear teaching of the Scriptures concerning uh, right and wrong and righteousness, then it deserves the support of Christians within, uh, that, uh, it, 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 within its citizenry. Now, the Bible makes it equally clear to us as Christians that we are also strangers and pilgrims in this world. And I feel more strange in this world by the week, by the way, and uh, more a pilgrim uh, than ever. And the world is making it very, very easy to do that for me. But uh, we, while we are strangers and pilgrims in this world and supremely citizens of heaven, that this does not exempt us from being outstanding citizens in whatever nation we live in in this world as well. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is a very basic for us as Christians is that we're to be law-abiding uh, citizens. Again, Peter said, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, and so forth. So Christians are never to have within any nation in the world, nor in the nation in which we live, there's never to be a stigma attached to us. There's never to be a hint of scandal where people would look and say at the mention of a Christian, those people violate the laws. Those people are corrupt. Those people you can't uh, trust. We should never be known within any culture in which we live as Christians as being uh, lawless or being criminals within that cultures. We Christians should not fill the jails and the prisons uh, of the nation in which uh, we live. We are to be the finest and the most law-abiding citizens any nation possesses because God knows that it is one more way for us to uh, wield our uh, influence. It's another way to exert influence within the nation in which we live. And it is a powerful means of doing so. It's a powerful witness to the body of Christ and to the kingdom of God when that represents us as a people within any nation in which we live. To where law enforcement, for instance, in the city of Modesto, where they would look at the city in which they're enforcing law under extraordinary circumstances and, and greatly undermanned and undermanned in, 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 in the entire endeavor. But that each one of them, whether they have a background in the Bible or not, but if one of the, each one of them would at some point in time uh, wake up and to have it come before them and to realize, you know, if everyone in our community were a Christian, we would hardly need the jail. We would hardly need the prisons. We would hardly need law enforcement. Our job would be made so easy if everyone was a Christian. And that's the kind of influence we're intended to 
exercise within the culture, to where local government leaders would come to wish that all of their, they, they may not say it openly, they may say it through gritted teeth, but they would be forced to con confess it that I could hope that every citizen of Modesto was a Christian. It would take us off of the list of being the home of uh, car theft, the capital of it for so many years uh, in, in not only California, but the United States. It would take care of our meth problem. It would take care of our drug problem. It would elevate our city in so many different ways or to where even beyond a local level, where state and federal officials would then have to stop and admit, candidly, we admit that if the entire nation were Christian, then it certainly would make our jobs in terms of governing this nation much, much easier. We could slash our budgets in virtually every department, every area in the light of how law-abiding these people are, how hardworking uh, they are, how loving and helpful of one another uh, that they are. And the reason that we're to be such citizens is that in the words of the, the apostle Peter, it's for the Lord's sake, as he said. That is because it's a good reflection upon the Lord. Not only does it not mar his reputation, but it enhances the reputation of God uh, in the world. And one of the things that Peter is telling us is that, yes, our heavenly citizenship is what is most important to us in life but our earthly citizenship is important as well. That while our earthly citizenship is always to be governed and dominated by our heavenly citizenship, our earthly citizenship can be used additionally as an influence for good and for God and for the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. One of the things that is, I've never understood uh, through all of the years that I've been a Christian and all the years that I've been a pastor, um, I, don't, uh, I don't say it to smite you if you hold this position and you sit here today. I just say honestly and openly, I don't understand it. The position that some Christians have that, where they view things like voting or running for political office, or exercising other rights that we, that we have as citizens of the United States is somehow uh, being secular or uh, as, as opposed to these things being actually have the potential of being spiritual in terms of the action, in terms of the influence. When I look at the rights that we have to vote or to run for political office or or to engage in any of the very many, many rights that we possess as citizens in our nation. And the ability to exercise all of these rights and to, and to uh, in, in doing so, to recognize them as just being another way that God has afforded us, as Jesus said, to be an influence in the world, to be salt in this nation and in this city, to be light in this nation and then uh, in this city, to be an influence for the kingdom of God in every way that he's given us to do so, including our citizenship. 
and to take that ballot when it comes and to pray and to say, Lord, this ballot belongs to you like everything does in my life. It's not mine. It's not mine to express uh, the limitations of my wisdom or my perspective. But, Lord, I pray that as I sit down now to vote with this ballot and this voter guide that is in front of me that helps me to understand what's on the ballot, would you please show me what is righteous and unrighteous in terms of these propositions that are before me and the light of your word so that I can vote righteously on these propositions. And then to put the, those that are running for office through the same grid and, and then to vote uh, accordingly. As I understand the Bible, there is absolutely no division and need not be a division between the secular and the sacred in a Christian's life. But the Bible teaches that everything can be sacred when it's done with the right heart, when it's done in the right way and with the right attitude. Everything can be sacred in the life of a Christian. Everything can be done for the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, famously in this regard, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, that's not three times in the passage, this is what I'm doing to it, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, it indicates that every activity that we engage in as Christians It can be done for the glory of God. And when it's done for the glory of God, it's that activity, however it might be viewed by the rest of the world, that activity is sanctified. This vein, I think about two of God's servants uh, found each of them in the Old Testament. You know, there are two servants of God in the Old Testament of whom nothing negative is spoken. Nothing negative is said of them. It doesn't mean that they were sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. But nothing in the entire biblical record, nothing negative is spoken concerning them. And the first one of those uh, two, as we we think about them, both of, uh, of which were men that God called to be mighty influences for him in the midst of the political realm of two very, very ungodly empires. And the first of the two, of course, is Joseph, who God made to be the second most powerful man in Egypt at the time of Pharaoh. And what did he do? He used that so-called secular position as the second most powerful man in Egypt, to then use that to influence a nation and to influence the world at the time for God and for good. The second person, of course, is Daniel in the Old Testament. 
Here he was spent uh, 70 years in captivity with the Jews in Babylon, and yet he rose to the highest positions within the Babylonian Empire as an advisor, and he influenced the kings, and he influenced the nation for God uh, and uh, for good. And here you have these two men. They lived and they served in very secular environments, very, very ungodly environments, and yet they remained deeply spiritual in those environments. But they didn't just remain spiritual in those environments. They had the added recognition that they had been placed in that environment strategically and divinely to be an influence for God in that environment. And they served the Lord fully in the environment that he had placed them. There wasn't any secular or sacred divide in their minds. It was, this is where God has called me to spend my life. And as such, it is deeply spiritual service. Though I find myself in the midst of a very wicked government or a very wicked environment. And I believe that Uh, like Joseph and Daniel, uh, if we desire it as Christians, that God strategically places us in our places of employment and the schools that we attend and the neighborhoods that we uh, live in, and he places us there to strategically to live out the life and the teaching of Jesus, and that he places you and he places me as strategically and as uh, determinedly as he does any missionary that he plants in any city in the world. And to know this about our lives as Christians, to recognize it in our lives as Christians that no part of our life is secular. All of it is spiritual. All of it is about God using us as an influence for his kingdom in the environment that he's put us into. It produces an excitement in our life to wake up every day the way a missionary does and says, what is God going to do in me today? What's he going to do through me today? What a privilege it is to be able to live obediently to God and to his commandments for the kingdom of God in this God-forsaken environment that he has me working in and so forth and never minimize the influence of it. The kingdom of God, though it is an invisible kingdom at its core, it never remains invisible. I like the old saying, the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is made visible by the obedience of God's people. Every time we obey God's commandments, the kingdom of God explodes forth in that meeting at work or in that locker room at school or in that, uh, you know, uh, the, in the neighborhood meeting or wherever it might be, all of a sudden everybody is aware that is, as what we do is contrary to the darkness of what might be proposed or the underhandedness or whatever it might be, people realize immediately that another kingdom has just entered into this conversation 
Another kingdom has been introduced into this uh, meeting. And so to realize the power of our lives in the environments that he has placed us in, and then to carry with that the excitement that this invisible kingdom is being made visible through me all day, every day, as I work in this place, as I live in this place, as I go to school in this place, and, 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 that it, and the kingdom is being demonstrated in it. Now, you may not see anything of it. You may not see any fruit of it. Jeremiah served the Lord for 40 years and never saw a single convert. But his influence was important, and it was, and it was recognized. It wasn't, um, it wasn't responded to properly by people, but the influence was there. And the same thing is true of our lives as well. And to live this kind of life not only brings an excitement into our life that we would never otherwise know in anticipation uh, to the daily of our life, but it also brings a sense of significance to our life that we, will, we would never otherwise know and a significance that God wants each of us to experience no matter what he's called us to do or where he's called us to do it, that because I'm allowing God to direct my life, there's nothing secular about it. Everything is sacred. Everything's being done for the glory of God. And isn't it true that what we so often lose sight of and the compartmentalizing of our lives as Christians. So often looking and saying, this is the sacred part of my life, this is the secular part of my life, the divide that we look in, here's the Sunday part of my life, and then here's the person I am at work and so forth and all of this. And then we have this tremendous capacity to subdivide in this way and categorize in this way. And what we so often forget is that God never looks at us this way, but also importantly to realize the world never looks at us. Once it knows that we're a Christian, it never looks at us as anything other than a Christian in whatever environment they find us in. There is no compartmentalizing that goes on in their mind. They not only expect to see a Christian in us when they see us at church, but to see us in a marketplace, to see us at a restaurant, no matter where they would see us, they expect to see spiritual. They expect to see a, a member of the kingdom of God, and, and rightfully so, their expectation is. It's exactly how God wants it to be. We're the only ones who fall prey, and I hope none of us do, and to any degree that we've done it this morning, to correct from it. We're the only ones that do this divide within our life. Heaven doesn't do it, and the world around us doesn't do it. They understand the influence of our lives as Christians and the potential influence of our lives in every environment that they find us in. And this, I think, is the larger principle, at least the one I wanted to focus on in this passage, the realization that in the life of the Christian, there is no secular uh, spiritual divide, but that uh, we possess this ability to influence for the kingdom of God. And if we've been called to do that, everything that we do 
is spiritual when we intend it uh, to be uh, exactly that and that we should never abandon any opportunity that God has given us, any privilege that even our nation uh, gives to us uh, to exercise our influence and, and to do so in a spiritual way. The world that we live in right now is a very dangerous place. It doesn't worry me, and I hope it doesn't worry you, because it is absolutely on course in terms of what God said the world would be like in the last days. I hope you're not wringing your mind or your hands or your heart over the circumstances. One of the things that's interesting, when both Peter writes about uh, government and so forth, and Paul writes about uh, government and all, when they do so, they write in a way that they communicate their understanding of a providence uh, over all of man's government. And so they don't look at, again, this disconnect that somehow what is happening here is completely disconnected from heaven and we're all on our own in terms of the governments of the world. No, God is in charge of all of it. And I think of providence as the fact that God rules over all and he overrules all for his purposes. When I look at the world, when I look at our nation, and there's a, a lot to be an alarmed about in the natural uh, related to that, but when I become panicked about it or when I become obnoxious or become violent or hostile uh, in engaging in what is happening within our nation, it's always a sign that somehow I have elevated my earthly citizenship over my heavenly citizenship. I have lost perspective and that the wrong one is, is dominating the right one and it needs to be flipped over. When you look at the world today, don't shout out please, but I pose the question. When you look as a Christian, familiar with the scriptures and prophecy of what God said would mark the world at the end of the age, do you see anything other than exactly what God declared the world would be like immediately before the return of Jesus Christ? No. And so here is this providence that uh, rules over all, and it brings a peace and a stability and a sanity and a calmness to our life that our nation and our city desperately needs, that our families need, that our whoever needs in which we are introduced into in order to be an influence uh, for God. So the world is a wild place. And I think as we look at Paul here this morning, it's not a time to retreat from our engagement with the world, not on any level, but to exercise everything that Jesus is, God has given to us, even in the realm of citizenship, to be an influence for God and for good and for uh, the kingdom of God. Let me close with uh, Jesus' teaching in this very realm from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, for you, speaking to Christians, and the idea is you and you alone are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do they take, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you this morning for every bit of influence that you have granted us in this world and in this nation. We thank you for the influence that you have granted to us in the form of rights as citizens of this nation. And Lord, that this is not the reminder here this morning that this is not something that is unholy or secular or carnal, but something that is to be used for your glory and for the advancement of the kingdom. Thank you for the reminder uh, today. And Lord, we pray that you would use us and help us to use every bit of opportunity to influence at its fullest at this time in history and not to withdraw in any way. And Lord, I pray for us this morning and ask even more significantly, that you would protect us from this secular, sacred divide that so often fills our minds and dominates our decision-making and our actions, a divide that does not exist from the perspective of heaven and does not even uh, exist within the hearts and minds of the lost who watch us. And so, Lord, keep us from putting anything in these two categories or anything that in solely the secular category, but to look at everything in life as an opportunity to represent you and to be an influence for you. Protect us against this great temptation, we pray, and use our time in your word to do so this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.